Well, we are continuing in our um, sermon series in the book of Hebrews, and we have reached chapter 5. And this morning we shall be considering the first 10 verses of that chapter. So I invite you to turn there in your Bible, or you can just sit and, and listen. <clears throat> This passage comes, of course, in the context of uh, the writer's exposition of the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, a theme that he introduced towards the end of chapter uh, 2 and to which he uh, returned um, towards the end of chapter 4. And uh, and this this theme, this doctrine really forms the the bulk of... um, of this letter's main um, main focus um, and exposition uh, in the in the central part of of this letter. So let us hear the the word of God, Hebrews chapter five, verses one to ten. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is bound to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, the passage before us this morning begins, as you can see, with a description of the high priest from Old Testament times. And in the first four verses of this chapter, We learn several facts about the high priest. Here we learn about the work of the high priest. We're told in verses 1 and 3 that the work of the high priest was to present sacrifices to God for sins, including his own sins. And then we're told about the character of the high priest at least the character that ideally marked the high priest, which was, in imitation of the true high priest, Jesus Christ, a sympathetic character. 
a character of compassion and kindness. Verse 2, he was someone who could deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself, we're told, is beset with weakness. And then we're also told about the high priest's qualification for his office in verse 4. No one, the writer says, takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So he was called to his office, appointed, ordained to the office of the high priest. So those are uh, several facts about the high priest from Old Testament times. He offered sacrifices for sins. He dealt gently with those whom he represented. And he was appointed to this office. And then having given this summary description of the Aaronic high priesthood, the high priesthood that had its origin in Aaron, the writer to the Hebrews goes on to compare and to contrast this Aaronic Old Testament high priesthood with the high priesthood of Jesus. That is what is happening here in these 10 verses. We have a, an exercise in comparison, an exercise in, in contrasting the um, high priesthood of, of Aaron and his descendants and the high priesthood of Jesus. And the writer to the Hebrews does this really in order to make the basic point that Jesus's high priesthood is superior to Aaron's. Jesus's high priesthood is superior to the priesthood of the Old Testament. That's the basic point that uh, the writer is making in these verses. He is underlining the perfection of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And his aim in doing so, here's the application to the original readers and hearers of this sermon. His aim in highlighting the superiority, indeed the perfection of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, is to get them to stick with Jesus, to continue with Jesus, to press on and persevere with Jesus as their high priest. He is saying, implicitly at the very least, do not go back to the Aaronic high priesthood, to the high priesthood that pertained under Judaism. Do not go back to that priestly system of the Old Testament because it was only ever meant to be temporary and transient. It is, at its core, imperfect. Perfection has now come with Jesus. So stick with him. Go on with him. Even though you are tempted to go back, don't. Because you will be going back to an imperfect high priesthood. So that's what he's doing in these verses. He's comparing and contrasting these two high priesthoods. And he is doing so in order to highlight the perfection of the one that has now come with Jesus Christ. In order to encourage those original hearers to press on in their faith in Jesus. And so this morning what I want to do is to focus really on verses 5 to 10. 
And here in these verses, we see the the preacher to the Hebrews delineating the perfection of Jesus's priesthood, really in terms of three main areas, which we shall look at in turn. So in what ways do we see the perfection of the priesthood of Jesus? Well, we see it, first of all, in his appointment to this office of high priest. That is uh, what is uh, described in verses 5 and 6. He has just explained that uh, the high priests in the Aaronic order were called by God to the role, the office of high priest. And he goes on to say in verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed, ordained by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Just as the high priests of the old covenant did not take this particular honor upon themselves, so Jesus did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. He didn't arrogate this office to himself. He was appointed and ordained to this particular office. Now, whether these verses speak of Jesus' appointment occurring in eternity before the uh, foundation of the world, or whether they speak of his appointment to this office at his ascension. There is some debate. I tend to favor the the latter view. But either way, the writer's stress in these verses is, is basically upon the fact that Jesus did not make himself a high priest. He was called to this office. He was appointed to this office. And this speaks of the remarkable humility of our Lord, doesn't it? Of all men, Jesus was the the man who deserved to be made high, high priest. He, alone among men, was morally qualified to be our high priest because he is the one who was, as we're told back in chapter 4, verse 15, the one who was without sin. And yet... Jesus did not, as it were, push himself forward. Jesus did not grasp at this privileged status. No, he humbly submitted to the appointment of his father. He, as it were, patiently waited to be called to the office of being our heavenly high priest. And just note the superiority of Jesus' priesthood compared to that of Aaron's, compared to that of the Levites. Here in these verses, we are told that Jesus' priesthood was bound up with his being God's son. That's the significance of the quotation from Psalm 2, there in verse 5. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus is the priest's son of God in heaven. And his, moreover, is an eternal priesthood. We see that in the quotation of Psalm 110 in verse 6. You are a priest forever. Jesus is an eternal priesthood. And then we also see in the same quotation from Psalm 110, the truth that Jesus' priesthood belongs to a different order, a different taxonomy 
His priesthood belongs to the order of Melchizedek, about which much more will be said in chapter 7. So I'm not going to go into it in any detail this morning. You'll just have to wait for that in two or or three weeks' time. We shall get a bit more um, into the... um, this somewhat mysterious uh, character of Melchizedek. But it's in these three ways, you see, that the perfection of Jesus' priesthood is emphasized by the writer. Here he is saying, unlike Aaron and his sons, Jesus, our priest, is God's own divine and exalted son. That was not true of any of the Aaronic high priests. Moreover, unlike Aaron and his sons, Jesus, our high priest, will never be replaced. His term of office will never come to an end. You are a priest forever. And unlike Aaron and his sons, Jesus, our priest, belongs to the prototypical priestly order, the order of Melchizedek, which we shall look at in more detail when we come to chapter 7. The basic point is this. Jesus' ordination as our priest was an ordination to the priesthood of perfection. And only Jesus was worthy to be ordained to such a perfect priesthood. But then secondly, as we go on, we see the writer highlighting the perfection of Jesus' priesthood in terms of his prayers. Verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. It is, I think, striking that the very first aspect of Jesus' priestly work, to which the writer draws attention, is Jesus' prayers. Here we learn the simple truth that Jesus was In the days of his flesh, a man of prayer. Jesus was a man who lived in constant communion with his father in heaven. He was a man who lived in conscious dependence upon the Holy Spirit, a communion and a dependence that was expressed in prayer. In the days of Jesus' flesh, which is to say throughout his entire life on earth, Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed and he prayed and he prayed. The whole of Jesus' life was a life of prayer. We might even say that Jesus' life was prayer. A constant offering up to God of himself in prayer, in earnest, devoted, intense, heartfelt prayer. Jesus' prayers, we learn here, were not casual. They were not indifferent. They involved him, we see in verse 7, they involved him in crying out loudly. They involved him in shedding streams of tears. Jesus, we see here, gave himself to the work of prayer, to the activity of prayer, to the discipline of prayer. Jesus put his whole heart and soul, his whole mind and strength into the hard work of prayer. 
And sometimes, perhaps often, maybe even always, Jesus in his prayers was overcome with emotion. Jesus was overcome with gut-wrenching pain in his prayers. Jesus groaned in the spirit when he prayed to his father. And we see this, of course, very clearly in Gethsemane. There in Gethsemane, such was the emotional intensity of Jesus' prayers that, Luke tells us, his sweat became like great drops of blood. Jesus cried out with loud cries and tears in Gethsemane, and did he not do the same when he was hanging on the cross? Were not Jesus' agonizing cries from the cross also loud cries of prayer? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. Throughout Jesus' entire life, and this came to a head, particularly in Gethsemane, and then upon the cross, but throughout his entire life, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. He offered them up. His prayers were a kind of sacrificial offering. This is the language of the priesthood. This is the language of the temple. Offering up of prayers. Offering them up to his father, to the one who was able to save him from death. And we are told Jesus was heard by his father. Which implies that his father answered him according to the desires that Jesus expressed in his prayers. Jesus was heard, why? Because of his reverence, because of his godly fear, because, in other words, he offered up all of his prayers as the one who was without sin, as the one whose prayers, therefore, were sinless prayers, who were pure and, 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 and perfect and untainted and unblemished in every respect. They were sinless, pure, perfect prayers. They had no taint of sin in them, no taint of unbelief, no taint, taint of ungodly fear, no taint of disobedience. And therefore, Jesus' Father in heaven was happy. He was most happy to receive the prayers of his son. He heard them gladly. He accepted them. And he answered them. With joy. And in what ways did the father hear and by implication answer. The prayers of his son. Well I think in two main ways. First of all, in accepting the sacrificial offering of his son for the sins of his people. And then secondly, in delivering his son from or out of death in his resurrection. These, I believe, were the two focal points of Jesus' life of earnest, intense, devoted, heartfelt prayer. You could sum up the prayers of Jesus like this, Father, receive me 
as my people's sin offering. Receive me as their substitute. Receive me in their place. Accept my offering as sufficient to take away all of their sins. And then, Father, having offered myself up as my people's substitute and sacrifice, I pray, raise me up from death. Raise me up. Deliver me that I might live with you in heaven forever as the God-man. And these two core prayers of Jesus were, we're told, heard. Answered in the affirmative by the Father. Yes, my son. It was as though the Father said, yes, my son, I do receive you as my people's sin-bearing sacrifice. And yes, my son, I will raise you up from death in the grave. Jesus' prayers as our high priest were heard on earth. And that continues to be the case now that he is in heaven. Jesus' prayers as our heavenly high priest, now exalted to the right hand of the Father, continue to be heard now that he is in that most exalted position. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has not stopped praying for you since the days of his flesh here on earth. He has not stopped praying for you since he ascended on high and was crowned with glory and with honor. And Jesus will not stop praying for you until his consummation, until he comes again in judgment. Right now, at the Father's right hand, your heavenly high priest is offering up prayers on your behalf to one who is able to save you from death. That is what Jesus is busy doing right now, praying for you, interceding on your behalf, saying, in effect, Father, receive my people, the ones for whom I gave myself as a sin offering. Receive them just as you receive me. And bring my people to glory. Raise them up from death just as you raised me up from death and brought me into your glory. That is the essence of what Jesus is praying for right now in heaven. You are in his mind, you are on his heart. And you can be absolutely sure that Jesus' prayers will be heard. You are in very safe hands, being in the hands Of the one who is praying tirelessly, unwearyingly, lovingly for you and for your salvation. So we see the perfection of the priesthood of Jesus in his appointment and in his prayers. And then thirdly, we see it, verse 8, in his obedience, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, this is not an easy verse to understand. It is somewhat similar, I think, to what is said back in chapter 2, verse 10, which speaks of Jesus being made uh, perfect through suffering. And it is important, of course, to emphasize that Jesus' learning obedience through what he suffered does not mean 
that at one time Jesus was disobedient and then as a result of the refining process of suffering, he became obedient, he learned to obey God. The author has already made it crystal clear that Jesus was without sin. Not once did he disobey God. Now what this this verse means is that as Jesus, in the fullness of his humanity, As he suffered, so he entered into new depths and new dimensions of obedience. He entered into depths and dimensions of obedience that he never would have entered into had he not suffered. Jesus learned as a real man what wholehearted obedience to his Father in heaven entailed what it involved as he grew older, as he experienced successive and no doubt increasingly sharper temptations throughout his life. And so as a child, Jesus learned what it was like to obey God as a child. As a 12-year-old boy, Jesus learned what it was like to obey God as a 12-year-old boy. As a young man, Jesus learned what it was like to obey God as a young man. And then as a full-grown, mature adult, Jesus learned what it was like to obey God as a mature, full-grown adult. And you see, with each successive stage of his life, as he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. As Jesus' first-hand experience of suffering grew sharper and stronger along the way, so too did his obedience grow stronger and firmer. With each new phase of his life of suffering, Jesus learned from his own experience as a man a new phase of wholehearted obedience. Right up to the point where his suffering reached its greatest and its highest and its sorest uh, intensity. Right up to the point where his suffering reached its zenith, which was, of course, his suffering of death on the cross, when all the angry powers of hell assaulted his soul in every part, when the full force of God's burning wrath was unleashed against him, when, in other words, the temptation not to obey and not to endure when the temptation to come down from the cursed cross would have been at its greatest and at its most intense, even then Jesus obeyed. Even then Jesus endured right to the very end. We might fairly say that Jesus' lifelong process of learning obedience reached its goal. It reached its glorious uh, culmination when he obeyed to the point of death 
even death on a cross. And please do remember why Jesus went through this whole process of learning obedience through the things that he suffered. Please remember why, although he was the transcendent son of God, Jesus yet humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death on a cross. Please remember that he did all of this for you. He went through all of that for your sake, so that he might be the perfect high priest that you need. And it's on this note of Jesus' absolute perfection that the preacher concludes this particular part of his sermon. He's outlined the various elements that constitute the perfection of Jesus' high priesthood, his appointment, his prayers, his obedience. And then he closes this section with a most resounding conclusion. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. None of us is perfect. None of the Levitical high priests was perfect. Every single one of us is deeply imperfect. Which means that we cannot save ourselves. Which means that we cannot get to God. Which means that we cannot be good enough to live in God's presence forever. We need someone to get us there. We need someone who will be good enough for us. Someone who will represent us perfectly. Someone who will be the priest who acts as our mediator. And that is who Jesus Christ is. He is perfect. Without blemish. He has been made perfect. Fully equipped fully furnished to be our priest and mediator. God the Father has accepted Jesus' priestly sacrifice of himself for your sins. God the Father has announced, as it were, here is the priest who is fully able to take away all of your sins and to bring you into my presence forever. It's my son whom I gave to you, who gave himself for you. He is the source, the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. There is no other source. There is no other savior. 
Only Jesus. His salvation. That he accomplished 2,000 years ago. Is, we learn here, effective for all time. And for all. All who obey his command. To believe in him. Perhaps you're not a Christian. If so, I encourage you to consider Jesus. I encourage you to come to Jesus. Because there is no one like Jesus. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is perfect in every way. There is no imperfection in him. Jesus is perfect in love, perfect in grace, perfect in sympathy and compassion. And Jesus is perfectly willing and perfectly able to save you, to forgive you for your sins and to give to you true heavenly Eternal life in the presence of God. He is the source of salvation. And all I say to the rest of you this morning is this. Stick with the Lord Jesus. Keep trusting in him. Keep looking to him. I don't suppose any of you here are tempted to go back to the Levitical priesthood of Aaron, as these Hebrew Christians were. But perhaps there are other people that you are tempted to look to or to trust in or to depend upon too much. Do not settle for imperfection when you have perfection in Jesus. Stick with your perfect high priest. Make him your first and your highest love. And remember that in his perfect love for you, he has forgiven you for all of your many imperfections. And he has clothed you with his perfect righteousness. And he will one day present you perfect and blameless in the presence of your Father. Amen.